And thank you all for the wonderful singing this morning. So good to hear you singing like that. You can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 14. You should have an outline. So you know this morning we're talking about how to read the Bible. Very straightforward lesson. Give you some practical advice. Let me sing you something before we start to read. What light is that shining so brightly for me That gives me such courage the right way to see What hope for my trusting soul ever shall be God's wonderful book divine And I love the old Bible, precious old Bible A light on my pathway to shine And it keeps me so happy, always so happy happy God's wonderful book divine what hope for the traveler when strength's almost gone that makes him determined to keep plodding on what sweet consolation from heaven's white throne God's wonderful book divine and I love the old Bible the precious old Bible a light on my pathway to shine and it keeps me so happy, always so happy. God's wonderful book divine. What chart can you trust as a guide for your soul when tempests would strand you on some treacherous shore? What compass will point you to heaven's bright door? God's wonderful book divine. And I love the old Bible, the precious old Bible, a light on my pathway to shine, and it keeps me so happy, always so happy, God's wonderful book divine. Now in case you are wondering of what book I sing, it's the same one the old time revivals did bring. It's the only one Bible authorized by the King, God's wonderful book divine. And I love the old Bible, the precious old Bible, a light on my pathway to shine. And it keeps me so happy, always so happy, God's wonderful book divine. Amen. That starts us off right for 2 Timothy 3, verse number 14. Paul writes to this young pastor and says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. What an amazing advantage for any young person. From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Father, thank you for the precious old Bible. Thank you for a light that shines on the pathway of our lives. Please, Lord, let it shine now as we turn our eyes to what you've said 
Let it sink deep into our hearts. Please fill me with your spirit. Help me to preach. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can see Paul's concern starting in verse 14. It is the continuation of those that he has trained. He has spent much time discipling and training Timothy for the ministry. And he does not want to see all of that hard work go to waste. He doesn't want his labor to be in vain. And amen, I say as a pastor, I don't want to see the labor that has been uh, put forth on a congregation to be in vain. But I think this is not just true for a pastor and his spiritual children. But isn't this true for you parents and the children that you love dearly and raise and pray for and by the grace of God, teach and train them in the way they ought to go. We want to see them continue in the things that they've learned. If you can just look quickly at verse 14, he says, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. How could Timothy be sure about the things that he learned? Because Timothy did not only learn it by theory, he saw it in practice. It's one thing to hear it in a classroom, but go show me how it works. Let me see it in action. What was the living example that Timothy had at the end of verse 14? Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. It's not only that Timothy sat in the classroom of Paul, so to speak, but, and not only that Timothy was raised in a home where the Bible was a big deal, but Timothy got to see the Apostle Paul living the Scriptures. Timothy got to see his mom and his grandmother not only speaking about the Bible, but living it out. Just flip one page back. Look at chapter 1, verse number 4 and 5. Chapter 1, verse 4. Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in me. Unfeigned faith is it's not fake. To feign it is to fake it. He says, Timothy, you're genuine. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. So back in chapter 3, verse 14, at the end of it, when he says, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, Timothy learned the scriptures first at the feet of his mother. His father was an unbeliever. His father was a heathen, a Gentile man. But his mother and his grandmother believed in the Bible. They were not Christians, mind you. They were Jews. But they believed the Bible. And that leads us into verse 15. From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. What was the foundation that was laid in Timothy's life that allowed him to get saved when he heard the gospel? There was a fundamental belief in the Bible. In Timothy's home, his mother and his grandmother had taught him the Bible means what it says and says what it means. The Bible is to be taken seriously. And then when Paul showed up and began preaching the gospel, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything from the old scripture. And because this family was rooted and grounded in it, at least on the mom's side, it made salvation so much easier and possible. It made him wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice quickly, if I can just speak to something very practical, it is often said in churches that we no longer have the scriptures, that the apostles wrote the scriptures and those original copies 
those original manuscripts, that was the inerrant, perfect word of God. But as time has gone on, men have copied it, translated it, and mistakes have entered into it. So now we're not really sure if we have all the right words. We have something that kind of looks like the Bible, but we're not sure because we have copies and translations. Just think for a moment, what was Timothy holding in his hands as a young child growing up? The Bible says he had access to the Holy Scriptures. Holy Scriptures. Not Scriptures with a few mistakes in it here and there. Holy Scriptures. Inerrant, perfect, pure words of God. Timothy did not have the original manuscript of Deuteronomy in his hand. He had a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that was made of a copy and a copy. <laughs> and he probably had a translation to boot because Timothy was... He grew up in a Hellenized atmosphere, which would be Greek-speaking. So he didn't have the original Hebrew manuscript. He had a copy of a Greek translation, and Paul said, that's, that's perfect. That's pure. So just because you have a translation and a copy of a copy, you can still be, rest assured you have the Holy Scriptures in your hands today. Verse 15, from a child Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Moms and dads, do not hesitate to start emphasizing with your children how special that book is that you have in your home. Years ago, a pastor came to visit a family, and the family, you know, they were real excited to have the pastor over and, get, you know, get a little nervous about it, and they all gathered around, put on their nice clothes, and they're in the, in the sitting room, and I think you guys have a special room in the Afrikaans homes, just, you know, the pastorsekamer, you know, just, that's the room you use when the pastor comes, you know, and it has all the pretty pictures and everything that you want to see. And the mom turns to the little girl and says, uh, says, sweetie, go in that other room and bring that book that the family loves so much. And that little girl rushes off and she runs back in the room and she brought the TV guide. <laughs> Start emphasizing now what that special book really is. In verse number 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. That's what the word inspiration means. It is God breathed. Now, I believe that God led the men as they were writing. I believe they were moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the words. I believe that. And I believe you can call that inspiration. But I believe the inspiration of the Bible goes one step further. I believe that after the apostles wrote it, as they were moved by the Spirit and led by the Spirit, once they finished that epistle, that book, that God breathed into the book itself, into the words themselves, and they were no longer the words of a man. God, by breathing into it, now he stamped his image on those words. He claimed them as his own. He brought them to life. We read in many other places that the words of the Bible are living words. They are quick and powerful. The word quick is an old way of saying alive. Where did they get their life from? The same place Adam got his life from. God breathed into him. That's inspiration. He breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living soul. Where did the Bible get life? The men wrote it, they formed it, and then God breathed into it and said, those are my words. That's not just Paul. That's not just Peter. That's not just Moses. Then there are my words. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And here's one little word I'd like you to notice for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What is this book for? What is its purpose? And that's the first thing we're going to deal with. You can see on your outline. What is the Scripture's purpose? Let me give you this illustration to try to make it clear for you. If you drive by an empty plot, just an open piece of land, 
And on this plot, there are some bricks, there's some bags of cement, there's various tools. You probably won't see that a lot in South Africa because if those things are left unattended, they will be stolen. <laughs> so you have to see it quickly before they disappear, right? <laughs> but let's just say you were lucky enough to drive by right after it was dropped off. There it is. Now, would it move you? Would it stir you? It's an empty plot with a few building materials and tools. And right? That, that's, that really doesn't ring your bell, does it? Now, what if you get home and there's a letter waiting in your mailbox? You open it up and it says such and such address, which is that plot. These building materials are yours. The tools are yours. And it is now your responsibility to develop this land. And we will be by in the next couple months to see what you've done with this land and with these materials. Now, you're probably going to drive back to the plot and, and survey the entire thing, look at how many materials, how many tools, and start making plans. And you're going to hopefully do something with what has been left for you. Does that make sense? Because now you've, it's been explained to you what the purpose is of that land, of the material, of the tools. Let me tell you the other side of this analogy. Let's pretend for a moment that Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived, died, buried, rose again, never said a word. Just imagine for a moment, he went about his life, he was a carpenter, just woodworking, then died, rose again, went back to heaven. So the meat of his life is still there, right? What did he come to do? Die for us. He could do that, but what if he didn't say anything about it? What if he gave us no instructions? He just did it and then went back to heaven, seated at the right hand of God and says, I hope they figure it out. <laughs> you know what would happen? You and I today, we might be able to read in a history book that there was this unusual character that died and some said went back to heaven, but because he didn't say anything, we really don't know the significance of that event. We just drive right past it in the history books and think, well, another man died. These things happen. Imagine if Christ had not said anything. But he did. But he did. Jesus himself said, I am come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. He told us what his death was all about. This is not some apostolic invention of Paul and Peter. They're not reading into the event. From the mouth of Jesus himself, in Matthew 26... He said, my blood is shed for the remission, the forgiveness of sins. We know the purpose of his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He can't give you life if he's not alive. So his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus gave us instructions as to what that's for, what the purpose of it is as a ransom, a payment for our sins. But much more than just paying for the sins Jesus also said this if any man will follow me let him take up his cross daily and follow me now think of this we look at the historical event of the death burial and resurrection if we were given no instructions we'd drive right past and well there it is but because he gave us instructions and thank God those instructions were written down preserved the letter has been delivered to your mailbox if you take the time to open and read it, you find out I need to do something with what God left behind. 
I cannot let the building materials of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection just sit on that land doing nothing. That means everything. Because of what God has made available through Christ's sacrifice, I can not only make it to heaven one day, I can not only achieve eternal life with God forever, I can live an overcoming life now. I can overcome my sins, my problems, I can fix relations. All of these things can come right if I live a crucified, resurrected life. But you have to have the instruction manual. Without the words, without the instructions for how to use those things, those things lose their meaning. So what is the purpose of all this? Well, you say, Brother Mike, I get it. The Bible's important, but how do I use it? And that's, we want to look at that today. How do I read the Bible? How do I use it? You can, as many people do, look at it as a book of facts, a book of truths. And that's a proper approach. I appreciate that approach. Some will look at it and say, well, when I read the Bible, I expect to find truth about science. It's, it's a book filled with scientific facts. Now, I know that might, that might sit wrong with some, but the facts are still there. When the, Bi the Bible is not a scientific textbook. This is not anything new to you. You know that. Moses did not sit down and say, I'm going to write a book about physics and a book about chemistry. It's not about that. But when the Bible speaks about scientific things, it is observably true. You can demonstrate that those things are so. When science and the Bible seem to be at odds, it's not really the Bible and science. It's the Bible and scientific opinion about what might have been a long time ago. It's scientific speculation that seems to run in with the Bible. But Bible and true science, I have never seen anything that would indicate the, the statements made in the Bible are wrong. As a matter of fact, I have been greatly impressed with some of the statements found in the Bible. You read in the book of Job, which arguably is the oldest book in the Bible. In Job chapter 38, it talks about the light being parted. Now, we know this as a prism, right? You send light through a prism and it parts the light. Do you know who... I want to say discovered, but really studied into that. That was Isaac Newton in, six, in the latter 1600s A.D. Job is writing about 3,000 years before that, and he says light can be parted, and Newton shows up 3,000 years later and says, yep, that's how it works. <laughs> Nobody in Job's day would have scientifically been able to say that, but it, you see, the, the statement itself is accurate. Same book in Job chapter 26, he says this, that God stretches out the north over the empty place, talking about the universe, the, the, the outer outstretches of the solar system. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. When Job wrote this, the, the common thought was the earth is sitting on the back of a gigantic turtle. Now, that, that history will tell you that. That's what they believed. And yet Job was bold enough to say, I don't think there's a big turtle. <laughs> it's hanging on nothing. Which if you are a layman, right? Not a scientist, not a physicist, not an astrophysicist. If you're just the layman trying to describe the earth sitting in the midst of nothing, how would you describe it? It hangs on nothing. That's layman's terms for it's just floating there in space. That's an accurate scientific statement. How did he know that? We weren't able to verify that until the 20th century. He knew it back in around 1500 BC. That's impressive. That's impressive. Think of this statement. 
in this verse, the smallest thing, it says he stretches out the north over the empty place. Stretches, present continuous. You know what science has recently figured out? That the universe is expanding. Job knew that 1,500 years before Jesus died. How did he know that? How did he know to word it like that? You see, those types of statements are impressive to me. So when I read the Bible, I'm not worried about science and the Bible running against each other. I think science will eventually catch up with the Bible. When I read the Bible, I expect to find historical facts. And I, me, a, a lover of history, I find it fascinating, right? You may not be a history buff, but nevertheless, when I read in the Bible that this man lived in this place and these events happened, I find it fascinating when I look through other history books and it validates all of these claims. I also, when I read the Bible, I find it interesting to read about future events that are going to happen. So we have scientific facts, historical facts, prophetical facts. And if anything will grab your attention, the prophecies in the Bible. Oh my goodness, not 10, not 20, not dozens, hundreds of them. How did these men know exactly what was going to happen? And not, not something so benign as there's going to be a war. Anybody can predict that, right? I mean, that's, that's, yeah, we're pretty sure that as long as man is on the earth, there's going to be a war. There's going to be a sickness. Yes, well, that comes with being human, doesn't it? But we're talking things like every stone on the temple is going to be knocked down, not one stone left upon another. Jesus said that in 33 AD. That building had been standing for a long time. 37 years later, the Romans came in and knocked down every stone. Not one stone was left upon another because somebody told the Roman soldiers that they hid gold underneath the walls of the temple. So they plucked up all the bricks looking for the gold. How did, how did he know these things? Those type of prophecies are impressive. I expect when I read the Bible to find these facts. But if that's all you're going to get out of reading the Bible, I think you're leaving a lot on the table. There's a lot more to the Bible if you read it properly. So let's, let's understand verse 16, will we? It is profitable for doctrine. So when I sit down to read my Bible, what am I looking for? Number one, doctrine. What is doctrine? It is a belief or a teaching about anything. Anything. You want to read about food, you want to read about cattle, goats, you want to read about sowing, it is going to tell you what God thinks about those things. So it is a belief or a teaching about anything. Let me recommend this. When you read a passage, ask yourself this question, what in this passage can I learn about God's nature? And then read, ask this question, what do I learn about man's nature? See, this is how God acts in these situations. This is how man acts in these situations. And then get this question. Based on these facts, what does God expect from men? Consider that when you read it. Don't just read it and say, well, that happened. This is going to happen. Those are historical, prophetical facts. Read it and say, now, based on what has happened, what do I think God expects from me? Because if God rebuked this man or commended this, this person for these things, then if I were in that situation, what would God say about my life? Doctrine, what does God expect from us? Now, this is something we give you in our discipleship course, but I think it's worth repeating now. It's imperative. When you read the, any verse, any passage, answer these three questions. Number one, who is talking? Number two, to whom is he talking? And number three, when does this apply? When is it being said? 
Let me illustrate why it's so important to know that as you read the Bible. If you don't get those three questions right, you're going to read the Bible with extreme frustration because you are going to feel as if I can't do all this. God doesn't expect you to do all of it. You can learn from all of it. There's certain things you should do, he expects of you, and then certain things are told to others. Uh, This verse here. The Bible says that you're supposed to leave your country and your family. The Bible says, leave your country, leave your family. Now, do any of you, based on that verse, want to make plans to leave South Africa? I know some of you are, (laughs) but for other reasons. It's not a biblical command. You know that. God told Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house and go to a land that I will tell thee of, right? When you read that verse in the Bible, do you think, oh boy, now I have to move? No, you know why? God didn't say that to you. Now, if you're reading that and God says, hey, I said that to Abraham and I want you to do it. Well, that's a different story. (laughs) But when you read the verse on the surface of it, that, that verse does not teach we all have to immigrate. It does teach that Abraham had to immigrate. And it also teaches something about God's nature. He might ask you to leave. He might ask you to go to a foreign country. And you might want to stay open to that. Uh, Can I ask you to just hold your place in Timothy? Flip to the very back of the Bible. Last page, Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22. How do I know what God expects from me? You need to know what God said to you. You can learn from what he said to others, but what did he say to you? What did he command you to do? Revelation 22, verse 11. Please do not try to obey this verse. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) Revelation 22, 11. The Bible says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. Don't don't try that. (laughs) If you've come this morning and you've never been saved, please don't walk out unsaved. (laughs) Be justified by the blood of Christ before you leave. This verse continues, he which is filthy, let him (laughs) repent and stop being filthy, right? That's what I would say, but that's not what it says. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Please don't go with that. A man years ago asked Brother D.L. Moody, said, "Uh, Brother Moody, can you give me a verse against smoking in the Bible? He said, no, I can't give you a verse against it, but I can give you a verse for it. And he gave him this. He said, he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. (laughs) Some of you aren't laughing. Uh, Verse 11. (laughs) Verse 11, now, at the end, he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. We can grab onto something there, but do you see how the, the entirety of verse 11 could not possibly be applicable now? It is applicable in eternity because by the time you get to the end of time, there's no more time to change anything. So the, by the time you enter eternity, if you enter as an unjust person, unsaved, that's how it's going to be. If you enter in filthy, that's how you're going to be. So do something with the opportunity you have now so you don't get to that and you're stuck. Come back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you read through, the, especially the New Testament, you're going to find several things that were written to you. Somebody living after the cross, which is a New Testament time period, and things that, are expect, that God expects from us right now. The people in the Old Testament didn't have access to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, did they? It hadn't happened yet, but we do. So God expects us to do something with that death, burial, 
and resurrection. Let me give you an example of how you can take this knowledge that we have now of the New Testament and find it in the Old Testament. If you read Numbers chapter 21, you have a story about Israel complaining and God sends fiery serpents to bite the people. When they are bitten by the fiery serpent, they die very shortly thereafter. Now, when you read that story, that's just history. It happened. God told Moses, make a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and tell the Israelites, look to the brazen serpent on the pole, and if you look, you'll live. Now, all that is is a piece of history, yes? And for many people, they read it, and that's all it is. It's, it's a great story, but that's history. Now, take what you know about the New Testament and read that story again. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we sin, we're bitten by that snake. You know what happens by, when you get bitten by the snake? You die. The wages of sin is death. You're under the wrath, the punishment, the condemnation of God. But God in His loving kindness and mercy has made a way for you that is facing death. You can escape this and find life. So he says, put a serpent, a brazen serpent, up on a pole. And Moses tell the people, look and live. But when you look, not just a glance... Not just that your eyes passed across it, but looking at it with faith, knowing that if I look at this, God said I'll live. Do you, do you see the trust that's in that? That this look has a purpose. You say, but Brother Mike, what do you mean by the brazen serpent up on the pole? Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He said, when you're reading about that serpent, you're reading about me. You say, oh, Brother Mike, wait a minute. We can't call Jesus a snake. We can't call him a serpent, but wait just a second. When Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says he became sin for us. It says in Galatians chapter 3 that he took the curse of our sin in himself on the tree. So it is appropriate to look at him accursed of God because he's carrying our sins. Hence, the serpent is a very valid and rightful illustration of what Jesus went through on the cross. We look to that and we live. You don't turn your eyes of faith toward Jesus on the cross and there's no life to be found anywhere else. So do you see now it's not just a story of history. That story actually supports and further teaches us something about our present day situation. We can find doctrinal teachings even in the Old Testament. Number two, I put up three. Number two, uh, it says... In verse 16, it's profitable for doctrine. So it tells us what to believe, how God is operating with man. Number two, for reproof. What is reproof? It is an expression of blame or disapproval. Simply said, one person tells another person, you're wrong. Now, rebuke is reproof's older, bigger cousin. <laughs> rebuke is a harsh criticism. It's like saying you're wrong, but doing it loudly. <laughs> Okay, but reproof is explaining to somebody what you're doing is wrong and here's why. Now, as you read, there's going to be many verses in the Bible that come right out and say, thou shalt not. Yeah, and if you're doing, if you are thou shalting, when you <laughs> thou shalt not, then you have been reproved, right? The Bible has said what you're doing is wrong. Some things are very straightforward. However, when you read the Bible, just basic practical stuff this morning, as you read these stories, don't look at it just as history. Look at it as something that might be happening in your life. When you read the story of Nabal, everybody remember Nabal? 
1 Samuel 25, Nabal married to Abigail. He was a jerk. He was a jerk. Nobody could approach him. The Bible says he was a churlish man. That doesn't help much, does it? A churlish man. You say, what does that mean? He was a jerk. Nobody could talk to him because he would just lose his mind. He was such a hothead and had a fast trigger. I, he was just a problem. Well, ladies, gentlemen, if that's your issue, maybe you got a fast temper. Maybe you are a bit difficult to speak with and nobody can approach you. As you read the story of Nabal, God might start tapping on your heart saying, hey there, Nabal, are you learning the lesson from this story? If you're a mom or a dad, I strongly encourage you to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. You'll read about a priest named Eli, and he practiced something we call doormat parenting. He let his kids get away with everything. He wouldn't rebuke them. He wouldn't tell them they were wrong. And as they grew up, they become some of the worst men in Israel, and they pretty much destroyed the nation. God said, Eli, it's because you were a bad parent. Rather than waiting for the pastor to stand up on a Sunday morning and saying, here's what you're doing wrong, you can on a daily basis read through the Bible and see that God condemned these behaviors and man, I'm doing the same things and thereby get reproof. Maybe some of you have been lying and cheating in business. Telling people it's one way when it's not just so that you can get the blessing of a better tender or a better opportunity. You, you need to maybe go back and read the story of Jacob where he tricks his daddy by putting on the goat skin so that he can get the blessing. Do you see how reading that story, if I am cheating in business and I read that and I see the outcome, I'm going to walk away reproved. The Lord's going to say to me, you're doing just what Jacob did. Maybe this morning you're struggling, holding on to a grudge. You're bitter against God for what he did or didn't do. Some supposed wrongs that you think he should have fixed in your life. Read the story of Jonah. God asked him a question. I'll ask you the same. Doest thou well to be angry? Do you see how reading that story can reprove you? Because if you've been holding on to a grudge, reading about Jonah is a very soft and gentle way of saying, you need to deal with your bitterness. That's reproof. This goes right into the next thing for correction. This is number three on the outline if you're keeping score there. It's profitable for doctrine. What do we believe? For reproof, what are we doing wrong? For correction, how do we make it right? Okay, I've messed up. I, I, I humbly admit it. I get it. Now, how do I fix it? Thank God we have a Bible that doesn't only reprove. Wouldn't that be rough if it was only thou shalt not, thou shalt not? Shame on you. Walk away. <laughs> right? That, that's not how it is. If the Bible will say, repent, right? When John the Baptist showed up, repent. The first thing Jesus said in his public ministry was, repent. You know what he did after that? He stands on a mountain and says, here's how you fix it. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. John, he comes out and says, repent. And the people come to him and say, but John, what shall we do then? And John says, are you a tax collector? They say, yep. He says, stop cheating people. Are you a soldier? Yes. Okay, well then, stop abusing people. Stop falsely accusing them and stop complaining about your wages. <laughs> Here's how you fix it. You know, the Bible is very straightforward. Many times, if you've made a mistake, it'll say you need to experience godly sorrow. You need to repent. You need to apologize. 
and then you need to avoid that temptation by doing this or that. The Bible will give you very straightforward information, but sometimes it gives that same information through the stories found throughout the Bible. Say, I have made the mistake of lying. I've made the mistake of allowing my bitterness to grow into depression. I've gotten so angry that I've killed. Now, how do I come back from that? Well, you can go ask Abraham. He lied. You can go ask Elijah. He struggled with depression. You can go talk to Moses. He murdered. Say, I committed adultery. What do I do? Go talk to David. There is a way back from those things. Just because you messed up does not mean you're disqualified from walking with God. You can find the correction for those things in the Scripture. So what do I do? When I read my Bible, how do I do it? Look for those things. That's the purpose of it. God, teach me what to believe. Show me what I'm doing wrong. Show me how to fix it. And then lastly, instruction in righteousness. That's number four. For years in America, before I came to Africa, I just drove and drove I'd, from church to church to church. This was before the days of GPS. So I was relying on the directions given to me by a pastor. Sometimes that worked out and sometimes, okay, not sometimes. <laughs> Very rarely did that work out, but sometimes it, 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 you know, it did. You know, I got so used to when we'd pull into a new town, I would just count on, I'd always give myself extra time because I knew I'm going to make about five wrong turns before I find that church. I don't know if you've ever been in New Jersey. God help you if you ever go to New Jersey. They have the most messed up road system. When you drive up, of course, we drive on the right side of the road. You guys are on the wrong side. We're on the right side of the road. And when we're driving, you know, when you want to turn right onto an off-ramp, all the other 49 states, you just get on the off-ramp. It's just a simple right turn. Not in New Jersey. They have something called jug handles. So as you're driving up, if you want to make a right turn, you have to turn left, come around the jug handle, and shoot out to the right. My first time in New Jersey, I thought I was in purgatory. I thought this, God, this is the penance for all my sins. What have I done? Why would you send me here? The reason I'm telling you these seemingly pointless stories is to say this. You don't have to make a lot of wrong turns before you get it right if you have good instructions and follow them. We have instructions for righteousness. So if you are starting a marriage starting a career, starting your studies at university, if you uh, are starting a bank account. Oh, I wish somebody would have helped me when I started a bank account to say, this is how you save money and this is how you spend it or don't spend it. <laughs> I wish I had instructions for every part of life, some good instructions that I could trust so that I don't make a bunch of messes and then have to correct it later. I can get it right the first time. The Bible will help you do that. Did you know there are verses for literally every moment of your life? There are verses in the Bible that tell you what to do when you wake up. Did you know that? There are verses that tell you what to do when you lay down, as you're trying to go to sleep, what to do while you're walking down the way. It, everything, it's all covered. When you read the Bible, look for that. Now, that's the introduction. Here's the sermon. <laughs> We're doing all right. No, 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 no. Don't scare the people. No, 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 no. We're, we're almost done, actually. He, Hebrews chapter 4. Turn there with me, please. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Look with me, please, at verse number 12. 
these next six things. These are just tips for reading, and I don't need to get real deep into any of them, but I do hope they'll be helpful for you. Hebrews 4, verse number 12, for the word of God is quick. Now, there is another verse in the Bible that says the word of the Lord runneth swiftly. So it is fast, like in that sense, but the word quick here, as I mentioned earlier, it means alive. And this is because God has breathed into these words. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I want you to watch that last part carefully. The Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents, the intentions of the heart. So this statement rings true. When you sit down to read the Bible, the Bible is reading you. It knows why you sat down. It knows the amount of effort you're putting into it. It deserves to be taken seriously. With that being said, let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, it takes time. It takes time. People often start to read the Bible and they get right they get through Genesis okay. And after you get through the first part of Exodus, we're all right, because that's pretty interesting. Those 10 plagues, then you have Pharaoh getting, you know, halfway through the Red Sea. If you've ever read that part of the story, chapter 14, 15, in chapter 14, the wheels come off of Pharaoh's chariots, and after that, Israel's in the wilderness, and it gets dry. <laughs> and it's right about halfway through Exodus that the wheels come off, and people say, I, I don't know, man, really? And Leviticus, it's not like it speeds up a lot. And Numbers, the first nine chapters, are a bit challenging because you know what it's about? Guess this, Numbers. <laughs> the tribe of Dan is 54,000. The tribe of Nephilim, oh man, God, please, let's get to something interesting. It does pick up eventually, but it can be a bit, uh, it can, it can test, test you a little bit. Just please understand that getting familiar with the Bible takes time. This is not going to happen in one week, two weeks, where you sit down and, man, I understand what all these verses are saying. I get it. This all comes together perfectly. That takes time. It takes, in many cases, years. This is going to be a lifelong project. Be patient with yourself. Do not hold yourself to this standard of, I've got to understand every verse today. Jesus is on the earth. He says to the disciples, to the apostles, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again the third day. Did you know that after Jesus rose again, they still didn't understand that? Jesus told a bunch of Jews at the beginning of his ministry, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The disciples did not understand that until after the resurrection. I'm so glad for this. It took them three and a half years to wrap their head around one doctrine. <laughs> it takes time. It takes time. Number two, number two, it takes work. It takes work. It takes time. You're not going to read the whole Bible in a day or a month. And it takes work. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, a verse you're probably familiar with. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Notice the word workman. It is work, man. <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. It, workman. <laughs> it's, it's work, man. It, it takes some effort. 
it surprises me that in a university town where most students, not all, really put in a lot of work into their studies. And I'm not condemning that. Help yourself. I think you should. Don't waste your parents' money. But that is preparing you for your career and for something that you'll use the rest of your life. This goes even deeper than that. This will not give you the particulars that your career will ask of you, right? But this will tell you how to handle a career, any career, how to handle the relationships in your life and how to prepare for eternity. If there's anything you want to study for, it is the final exam. Young boy walked out on the porch one day, saw grandma reading the Bible, sitting there in a rocking chair back and forth, said, grandma, what you doing? Grandma looked at him and said, I'm studying for my finals. <laughs> back and forth. It takes work. Some of you have spent, you've pulled an all-nighter preparing for the big exam or to write that big paper. And again, good on you that you're diligent and you're on top of your studies. Have you ever spent a night studying the Bible? I mean, how important is it? This book, you'll read another man's textbook, not condemning it, but what about God's textbook? It's going to take some work. It's going to take some effort. You ever sit in class and not understand something in the textbook or something the prof said? What should happen? Hand goes up. Prof, I'm sorry. What, was, what does this mean? Page such and such, line such and such. I don't get that. Can you explain it? You read a verse in the Bible, you're not sure what it means? Ask. That's part of the work. Tip number three, don't make excuses. Our flesh, I say our, me too, our flesh is excellent at this. I'm going to ask you quickly to peek over at Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. God is asking, or let's say commanding people to read the book. Isaiah 29, verse 11, And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. That's the educated guy. He looks at it and says, How can I read the book? It has a, it has a seal on it, a clasp. I can't, I can't open the book. Verse 12, And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I'm not learned. What do, we, what do we get from this? Just excuses. Excuses. This week, why is it that you skipped out on your Bible reading? What's the excuse that you gave the Lord? He delivers the book. He puts it in the hand of a man, and the man brings it to you and says, here, read this. And your response is, I'll make time for that, or I'm sorry, the schedule's too full. Tip number four. Read it in order. Read it in the order in which you find it. Just a tip. There's no verse in the Bible that says you have to do it like this, but I, th I think it's good advice. I do think it's fine if you jump around, right? If you play Bible roulette. Have you ever done that? <laughs> Bible roulette where you just say, God, what do you want me to do? Boom. There it is. There it is. Sometimes that works awesome, and then sometimes not so awesome. You know, our best two out of three. <laughs> Keep going till you find it, right? Uh, but, and that's fine. Sometimes you do need to jump around. Maybe you're looking for a particular answer or studying a certain topic, so it's okay to jump around. But not, do not let that be the only thing that you do when you read the Bible. 
Some folks, the only Bible they read is Facebook memes, you know, or bumper stickers. And that's just a verse here and there. Those things aren't bad, but that's not reading the Bible. So I'm going to suggest you read it all the way through because the Bible very smartly tells a story as it goes, consecutively. Uh, you get in Genesis, God makes man upright, man falls into sin. You know what the last verse in Genesis is? Man's in a coffin, dead. You know what the book of Exodus is all about? Redemption, bringing you out of bondage. So man falls into sin, dead in sin. God redeems you by the blood of the lamb, brings you out of your spiritual Egypt. And then the next book is Leviticus. It talks all about sanctified living. That's the theme of the book. And then Numbers is all about walking through the wilderness. We're walking with God in this sanctified way. And then Deuteronomy emphasizes the word of God. It is the second giving of the law. That's what the word Deuteronomy means. But then when you get out of Deuteronomy into Joshua, Moses dies before coming into the promised land. The law cannot get you to the promised land. Joshua can. Joshua is the Old Testament word for Jesus. He brings you into the land and gets you settled. You find victory in Jesus, but you know what happens if you're not careful. The book of Judges, the people fall into apostasy. If you don't follow the teachings of Joshua closely, you'll end up far away from, from him but you know what happens in church history? Jesus comes, the apostles are here, everything's strong, victory, we're in the land, we're settled, we're walking with God. Then this massive apostasy happens at the end of the church age, right before the rapture. You know what happens in the next book of the Bible, in the book of Ruth? A Gentile marries a Jew. Ruth, picture of the church, marries a Jew, Boaz, his name means strength is in the Lord, the strong man, the redeemer. He redeemed that Gentile Moabite. So a Gentile bride marries a Jewish redeemer, picture of the church marrying Jesus up in heaven. You have the rapture after a time of apostasy. That's exactly how the prophetic timeline is played out. You know what you have after Ruth, 1 Samuel. You know who's anointed king? Saul. He's a picture of the Antichrist because after the rapture, the Antichrist rises. You know what the Antichrist does? He chases David. Saul chases David. David's a picture of the Jewish remnant running for their lives in the tribulation time. But that at the end of 1 Samuel, the Antichrist dies. Saul is dead. And 2 Samuel begins with David on the throne. And he conquers. And he does with force. David comes with force. He's a picture of the conquering king, the second coming of Christ. And he gets his kingdom established through war. Revelation 19, Jesus comes back on a white horse and he makes war. You know what happens right after that? You have a time of peace. Solomon, the son of David, now you're into, you're into first kings. The next book, Solomon sets up his kingdom. Not one war in the time of Solomon, time of perfect peace. That's the thousand years. Not one war, perfect peace. The Bible will tell this story over and over again. If you really want to see it, read the book of Isaiah. Read it consecutive. They have called the book of Isaiah the Bible in miniature. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. There are 66 books in the Bible. The first chapter of Isaiah, you read about hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, Genesis. In the beginning was the heaven and the earth. God created the heaven and the earth. Last chapter, Isaiah 66, a new heavens and a new earth, and there's a lake of fire. Revelation, new heavens, new earth, and there's a lake of fire. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. The break comes right after chapter 39. In chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah, you know what it says? 
Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's John the Baptist, the book of Matthew, the 40th book in the Bible. It's amazing how it's lined up. I would recommend that you read it consecutively in order. If I can use a more modern illustration to help you think this way, when you watch a movie, you know, you can go to the, to the select screen and choose a particular scene. You can go to scene one, two, 15, 20. Does anybody turn on the movie and go scene nine, scene three, scene two? You can, but it'll be very difficult to follow the movie and you will spoil the ending that way. That's not how you do it. So I recommend reading it through. Number five, read it consistently. Read it consecutively, read it consistently. Put time and effort into it every day. If you were to, again, if I can go back to the movie idea, start the movie today, watch five minutes, turn it off next year, Amen. Next year, you turn it on again for five more minutes. Turn it off. Six months later, five. Do, do you, you get the point? There's very little chance you're going to enjoy that movie the way it was intended to be enjoyed. Chances are you will forget what you have watched and need to rewatch it. Hence, you start back at Genesis over and over again. <laughs> Read it consistently. Say, I don't get a lot out of it every day. One, one day, a, a man on a farm, he had a, a basket with coals in it. It was, a, maybe you've seen them before, a wire basket can hold the coals. So, you know, it's, it, it has open spaces in it. It's just wire. And uh, Grandpa emptied the coals out, and he gave the basket to his grandson. He said, head down there to the river and uh, get me a bucket of water. In a wire mesh basket, and that grandson looked at his grandpa like he's losing his mind. and said, all right, Opa, and he heads down to the river, gets a scoop of water and rushes back and grandpa says where's the water he said grandpa i can't hang on to the water the the basket is not whole it has holes in it he said well go try again and he ran down there and grabbed as much as he could ran back and nothing in the wire basket he does that three or four more times and finally the grandson's getting a little frustrated he says grandpa i'm not getting anything out of this there's no water we're not making any progress he said son look at the basket and he, he looked at it and he said, what color was it when you started? He said, black covered in soot. He said, what color is it now? He said, man, it's perfectly clean. He says, we got something done. He said, I'm not getting much out of it. You're getting more out of it than you think. It's getting the job done. I've put a quote on the bottom of the paper. Would you read it with me just quickly? This is from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Purpose of Man. Our reading here should not be a marathon, but a slow, deliberate soaking in of its message. Bible reading calendars are no help here. There are times when one verse or even a phrase will strangely draw us. That, that's his point. You have to follow the leading of the Spirit as you read. It would be impossible to go on until that Scripture has done its work in our heart. Do not faint here. Don't stop. Allow that scripture to marinate in your mind and heart as long as it feeds your soul. God is speaking and he deserves our utmost respect and attention. Often, we regiment ourselves to a daily Bible reading schedule and hurry on in our reading to keep up. Any of you ever feel like that? Well, I gotta go to work, but I only got a few minutes. Let me get in my chapter before I leave. The importance of reading the Bible is not reading, but 
fellowship with the author. Underline that. Memorize that. The proper reading of the Bible must be in the same spirit that authored it. Which leads me to point number six, last piece of advice. How to read the Bible? You need to have the right attitude. Attitude. Isaiah chapter 66. You can find it if you'd like. I'll read it for you now. Isaiah 66 in verse 2. God says, For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. God says, I'm going to draw near to the person who has the right attitude about my words. I mentioned earlier, when you sit down to read the Bible, it is reading you. When you sit down, Paul said in in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, he said, when I gave you the word of God, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in everyone that believes it. When you sit down, you look at it, not to say this is just the word of some guy, some preacher, his opinion. These are God's words speaking to me. I believe God is trying to tell me something. And this is the most important thing I'm going to do with my day. God speaking to me. Fully expecting that the word of God will not return void. It will accomplish that which he pleases. Let the water run through your soul and clean you from the inside. Let's all stand if you would please. Heads bowed and eyes closed. We've given you just a few ideas this morning to help you with your Bible reading. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes diligence. You can't make excuses. You have to overcome them. Read it consecutively, read it consistently. Approach it with fear and trembling, with the utmost reverence. This is God's book, and He's given it to me. It's not a contest to see who can read the most. Nobody's demanding you finish the Bible in so many days or months. It's not about reading, it's about fellowship with the author. We are so privileged to live in a land where Bibles are everywhere. But that does us no good if we don't pick it up and read it. Father, thank you this morning for speaking to our hearts about the importance of your word. We read in the Bible that you have exalted your word above all your name. It is of the utmost importance. Help us, God, to treat it like that. Help us when we look at our Bibles to stand in awe of what you've given us. Teach us the doctrine. Reprove us. Correct us. Instruct us in how to live life correctly. Lord, I pray that you would encourage each person in this room here today to spend more time, quality time, in their Bibles. And if anybody here is not saved, God, please use the Scripture to make them wise unto salvation. Show them their need for the Lord Jesus Christ and His words. Please, Lord, dismiss us with Your blessing. Create in us that hunger, that that sincere, that desire for the sincere milk of the Word. 
Lord, help us tonight as we open the Bible again to learn more from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for your time. We do have a service tonight at 6 p.m., but it is online. So please join us for that in the live stream, 6 p.m.